It's good to see tonight that no one chose to sit in this section right here. It's unbelievable, grateful for that. I want to start uh, tonight, I want to start tonight with this right here. Let's start with the RSS Titanic. Okay. Um, now, I, I've been obsessed for a long time with the Titanic, the story of the Titanic, the, narr uh, the narrative of the Titanic. Middle school, high school, did tons and tons of reports, just, just really obsessed with it. And uh, then the movie came out, and man, um, I've never cried so hard. I mean, it, my heart will go on, Celine Dion doing her thing. I mean, it was just the whole, do you guys remember, you know, people talk about, do you remember when you were there? Do you remember where you were when you saw the Titanic for the first time? I mean, insane, okay? I know some of you guys were like three, so welcome to this century. Anywho, listen to this. What if, the, what if the narrative of the Titanic completely changed? In other words, what if the Titanic story went like this? So all of a sudden, the unsinkable ship got about half of a mile away from an iceberg that was coming out of the sea. And lo and behold, uh, this uh, crewman all of a sudden awakened in a dream, went out on the bow, and with some binoculars saw said iceberg and all of a sudden went and alarmed and woke up the captain and the Titanic uh, veered and shifted and turned and, and just missed this iceberg that probably would have done some incredible damage. Imagine if that was the story. Imagine if the narrative had changed. Imagine if none of those people died and the Titanic made it to where it was supposed to go and it remained forever the unsinkable ship. Imagine if the narrative changed, next slide, in this story. I just uh, watched Pearl Harbor uh, this past weekend. If some of you guys seen that movie? Okay. Three of you? Okay. Dear heavens. You guys know no culture. Um, really, really drawn to the story of Pearl Harbor. My grandfather was a World War II vet. I know some of your grandparents were as well. What if the what if the narrative of Pearl Harbor changed? Uh, what if the story went something like this? Uh, what if it was, and three days before, this unbelievable attack that was going to hit the harbor, all of a sudden the intelligence was confirmed uh, that we were going to be uh, surprise attacked. And our adversaries found out that we found out. And so because of that, they relented. Like these two epic stories. Could you imagine if... All of a sudden, the narrative changed. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, what, if, what if the narrative never, ever left this? This is what we studied last week. What if every week we, we came here and we just read, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins? And there was no resolve, week in and week out, leaving hopeless, like, what if this narrative never changed? A, like, we wouldn't be here. Okay, we'd be out doing something else. Uh, we'd be gathering in some other location and looking for hope in some other way. So I want to remind you of where we were last week, okay? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, yes, by nature, children of wrath. That's not a term of endearment like the rest of mankind. What if this narrative never changed? Next slide. What if week in and week out, we just were like, we just put this on the screen every week, and we were dead, and we are dead, everyone. So congratulations, everyone. Have a good night. Go in. We wouldn't be saying peace. Like, go, go in turmoil, everyone, is the phrase. Well, if the word uh, left us there, uh, it would be an unbelievably hopeless reality. After verse 3 shows up, a phrase, a phrase that has echoed, echoed since Paul first wrote it some thousands of years ago. All of a sudden, the beginning of verse 4 says, but God, we were dead in our trespasses, but God, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God completely overwhelmed with our flesh, following the prince of the power of the air, but God. We look like the rest of the world, but God. Now, I know if you're like me, some of the terminology of but can get a little bit lost. Uh, some of you have heard uh, someone uh, apologize. Man, I'm, I'm really, I'm so incredibly sorry that I did this but really, the only reason why I did that is because of this and that. And so, but is used to justify and ultimately negate the apology. Has anyone ever had that happen to you like hundreds of times in your life, including today, right? Of course. And so we look at a phrase like this and then we think, well, well, is God just going to, you know, like falsely uh, apologize for something? Another situation you've been in is someone has said, hey, uh, so I have good news and bad news. And so reluctantly, you're like, well, give me the good news first. And so they share the good news. And then this word, but, is used as a transition for the bad. In other words, what I'm saying is, there's a lot of history with this word tonight. I want to not negate the history, but I want to invite you in on a new journey. On a journey that will be defined, not by how you or I feel tonight, but the truth of God's word the Bible says about itself, it's living and active, sharpened it to its sword. So because of that, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through this verse by verse, and every verse we're going to read together. And I pray that as we read it together, the truth of God's word just bathes you. I pray you can like feel it and sense it all over you. So let's begin. Next slide. Verse 4. Let's read this together in power. Come on. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul's writing chained to a guard in a Roman house arrest prison cell. And I'm sorry for assuming something I know to be confirmed in several other Pauline letters. That when he writes this, He's writing as a man who was dead in his trespasses. So when Paul says, 
but God, he's a man who's encountered the reality of that phrase. When you say, those of you who align with Christ, and this was happening, and this was going on, and this addiction gripped me, but God, being rich in mercy, you're speaking from a vantage point that has encountered the reality of but God. Well, I don't want to focus just on that phrase. I actually want to focus on another word in this verse that has hit me in the face with a bat. That word is because. Whatever comes after because is bringing us into God's motive. Now, uh, some of you were a child to your parents uh, late in their child-rearing days. How many of you guys were babies when your parents were like upper 30s, low 40s? How many of you guys were fit that category? Okay, several of you, okay? I saw some hands not wanting, like you kind of pulled it back. It's okay. Um, anytime you meet a parent who has had kids later in their child-rearing days, you know, you kind of get with them, and, and there's always one question that's asked. And that question is, so, uh, was it, like, was it planned, right? Like, did you, guys, did you guys plan this out, you know? Like, you guys know how this works, right? Like, well, like, did, was this an accident, right, we'll say. And, uh, you know, everyone kind of laughs about it, ha, ha, ha. Uh, but some of you who raised your hand, have heard your parents talk about you as an unplanned accident. And you know, though you would laugh it off because you don't want to act as if it's affected you, deep down inside, if something that you're a part of has happened accidentally, it takes the, the sense of purpose completely out of it. Am I supposed to be here? Am, Am I just like filling uh, flesh and blood and, and really not here? The reason I'm saying this is because of this truth. Next slide. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. His motive is love and his love is intentional. He doesn't like trip over himself and then all of a sudden find you. Oh, I guess I will love you since I just happened upon you. Oh, well, I, I, you know what? You're, you're, you're pretty nice. You look all right from God's vantage point. I, I guess I'll care for you. That's not what's happening. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, his love is insanely intentional. There is no accident in his pursuits and shepherding and love and care of you. But I know that at the core of some of your doubts of the reality of God is because you believe that he does not love you. How and why would God love me? I've done this and that. I've harmed others. I've lived my life flipping him off. Why in the world would he extend mercy to me? Can I tell you? Because of him. Not because of you, ever. I don't stand here, please hear this. 
preaching as a man who is worthy to be loved. I'm standing here preaching God's word as a man who is loved. I have never offered one worthy thing to the Lord. And then he has said, oh, Mark, you are so this or that. I offered him nothing, and because of his great mercy and because of his intentional love, I stand a changed man. And so listen, I'm inviting you in tonight, right now, to wake up. The beauty of the mercy of God is that he has intentionally sought after you, intentionally loved you, but God. Well, he goes on, and trust me, he's just getting going. Let's read this in power together, verse 5. Come on. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I cannot make this truth bathe you, but I'm praying it will. We were dead, but God has made us alive. Your question is, rightfully so, why do I then feel dead? If the scripture says that I've been made alive with Christ, if the scripture says it's for freedom, I've been set free, why do I feel bound? Why do I feel dead? Your feelings betray you it is so frustrating when brothers are encouraging me and they're sharing with me Mark you're believing something based on your feelings will you just hear the truth again brother I see in my brother's frustration when they're trying to encourage me when I'm like what about this I feel this way and what about that I feel this way Listen, you may feel dead, and I guarantee you the enemy wants to keep you there. Keep feeling lethargic. Keep feeling complacent. Keep feeling distanced from God. But the scripture says in Christ you've been brought near. You can feel however you want, but I'm saying are you powerful enough to negate the truth? Do you hold those keys? Do I hold the keys? Listen, are my feelings strong enough to look at God and say, well, God, I feel this way, so your truth must not be true. I say no. My feelings betray me. Your feelings betray you. And so because of that, let's gaze, next slide, at this beautiful phrase, with Christ. Now, can I tell you guys something? You don't have a choice. Listen. I forever, I forever imagined Jesus as a rescuer in this way. I forever imagined Jesus like sitting up in a boat somewhere. And he looks down. And I'm not a great swimmer. But in my sin, I'm like flailing around, drowning and I've always imagined the rescue like this. Jesus looks down. And in my moment of great peril, he throws me that, that little, um, what's the, the little thing, the round thing, the, the life, 
the lifesaver, okay, also great candy, right? He looks down and he throws that to me. And then I've imagined like Jesus as the great hero watching me get, get on the boat with the rest of the saved. When I saw this phrase with Christ, just seeing the phrase, this is what the word does. All of a sudden I was struck with a brand new reality. The actual story of our rescue is this. A king, the king, the most powerful king, walks by the road, and there we lie, peons and peasants, the worst and most degrading of the worst, bloodied, beaten, unclean. Now, many times the king maybe would look down at the peons and the peasants and send some of his helpers to provide some consultation. But instead, you know what this king does? He extends his hand. And the king, in extending his hand, lifts us out of our bloodied, beaten, in the pit, dark kind of dead state. And then you know what the king does? He doesn't watch us walk off and gather with the rest of the rescued. You know what the king does? Is he says, come with me. Do you think Alexander the Great would have done that? Taking the peon and the peasant and invited that person into unity. Come with me, he says. When he gathered the disciples in the early parts of all the gospels, he invites them to come with him. Don't stand over there. Don't distance yourself. Come near, he said. What Christ has offered in the rescue is the chance not just to be pulled out of yourself, but the opportunity to be forever unified with Christ. So I want to show you how that happens from Romans. Next slide. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, just like verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. You see, uh, the greatest hindrance, at least one of the greatest hindrances to many of you coming to the Lord is because you see others around you and think, well, surely God would accept them. Look at them. They're happy. They've got friends, they haven't screwed up like I've screwed up. I've heard it over and over and over. Surely God would accept them. No, no, no maybe, maybe you're misunderstanding. While we were dead, while we had nothing to offer, while we were peon and peasants, that's when Christ died. Not when things started to turn, not when all of a sudden humanity started looking better and God was like, oh, sweet. 
They're starting to figure it out. So now, let's send you, Jesus. Culture was in a dismal state. Sin in a dismal state. And it's at that time that Christ died for the ungodly. That is what began the unification with us and him. We've got nothing to offer, and he comes anyway. How about this in Romans 6? We were buried, therefore, what? Come on, what's the language? Come on, with him. We were buried with him by baptism into death. We baptized three people to begin the first service, one of which tried to take her life a year ago. A husband and wife who both came to Christ in the last three months started coming into this body, hearing the truth of the gospel, and one by one, first wife, then husband, surrendered their life. And you know what we said? Buried with him in the baptism of the death, raised to walk a new way of life. Our sins have been crucified in the cross of Christ, Romans says, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, look at this, look at this, we too, not just Jesus, but we with him, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, with him. With him, first he comes and he dies, and then he offers us the chance to be unified in that death, and not just unified in that death, but unified in that resurrection. And then finally, somebody, check this out, next slide, in Romans 8. But if Christ is in you and with you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is, what's the word? Come on. The spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you have the keys to negate that truth is what I'm asking. Are you powerful enough? Am I powerful enough to negate that? Mark, I feel dead. Mark, I feel distance. Well, there's only two options. Either you are dead and not a believer and in desperate need of the grace of God, which he offers tonight, or, or you're believing lies. That's it. Either the enemy in your flesh is negating your identity, or you really aren't with him. But he offers us the chance to be with him, the king to a peon. And because we are with him, oh dear. Check this out. Let's read it together. Verse 6 and 7. Come on, let's read in power. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, this is one of those verses where you're like, oh, that's nice. Oh, fancy that, right? This is just beautiful. Listen to that Christian poetry. Look at the rhetoric. Look at how Paul crafted those words. Do you understand what verse 6 and 7 is even beginning to help you understand? You see what happens is the king 
Oh, he pulls the peon and the peasant out. And then you know what the king does? He doesn't just offer union with him. But the king says, I want you in my presence forever. I mean, listen, we get tired of our family after three or four hours sometimes. The stories after Thanksgiving that I hear is, dear Mark, I need a break from my family. You get around some of your best friends and you can't wait just to get a little bit of a breather. Man, I can, I can only take so much of them. Do you understand what the king is saying? He's saying, I have done so much in them. Eradicated sin. Made them holy and blameless. That now they will be my grace-driven, grace-lavished worshipers forever. I want them in my presence. That's why I want to make clear, if the presence of God doesn't excite you, then you have signed up for the wrong king. I've heard so many people say, oh, I just can't wait to get to heaven, eating cotton candy and hanging out with the Care Bears all day long. Listen, I want to make sure... I want to make sure you're, you're not misguided about the glories of heaven. The reason why heaven is glorious is because God is there. And so of spending time in the presence of God forever, which none of us rightly understood, cannot conceive tonight, I just want to make sure maybe you've signed up for the wrong king. What he has done is he has said, now and forever, next slide, look at this in Romans, dear heavens, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but, but, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Strap on your seatbelt, look at this beautiful verse, 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. And look at this, verse 17. And if children, then heirs. <coughs> the king says, you're going to be in my presence forever. I've rescued you. I want you to be near me. I'm going to continually and eternally love you and pour my mercy and grace on you. And guess what? You're an heir. I'm going to seat you in the place of royalty. I'm going to raise you up just as I did my son. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with who? Do you guys, do you see the language? Fellow heirs with Christ. Anytime you and I have placed a phrase, fellow with Christ, we must all of a sudden see 95 exclamation points. Fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I fully understand that you guys all get to sit in those nice black chairs. You guys walk up and see some bounce houses and eat some hot dogs. 
and after tonight are going to enjoy some root beer floats. I fully understand that. I fully understand that. But listen, when this was written, it was written to people who every single day, every single day of their life, it was, if I believe in Jesus, then that probably means my death. So I understand why it's easy to sit in that black chair. I understand why it's easy to be lethargic. I understand why it's easy to see these words as nice words. Oh, that's, that's cute, Jesus. Thank you so much. But maybe, just maybe, the confrontive nature of God would wake you and I up so much right now that these wouldn't just be cute words anymore. Because I guarantee some of you right now need an absolute wake-up call. It's, but God... I'm just going to do my thing. But God, I remember when I was stirred by your love, but that was a long time ago. But God, I feel this and that. It is life and death, whether you realize it or not, which is why, next slide, this text is so unbelievably clear. Let's read it together, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So when you see next slide this, what do you think of? Yeah, okay, that was a rhetorical question, but I do. You guys are like, presents, well done? Okay, like, right? Yeah, I mean, you think of... Christmas time and birthdays. Uh, my mom is a gift giver, and so she would just like make up reasons to give gifts. Fourth of July, everyone gets a present, right? Like President's Day, let's celebrate. Everyone gets, she's like Oprah, like you get a present and you get a present. So I grew up in a home where presents were a big part, gifts were a big part of my life. And I was also in a home that uh, as I was growing up, we visited good old Santa Claus, right? It's always kind of awkward, like, as, you, as I grew older, my mom was like, you will sit on his lap, you know? And I'm like, mom, I'm like 30. Like, are you sure? This is, um, but I remember being a kid and go sit on Santa's lap. And inevitably, good old Santa, wearing that fake beard of his, looks into your eyes and says, well, son, have you been a good boy this year? And I remember sitting there really contemplating, you know? And I remember thinking, well, what kind of grading system are we going on here, right? Like, I need some clarity, Santa. Like, is this A, B, C, D, you know, F, right? A, B, C, yeah, A, B, C, D, F. Like, I'm probably a C plus. Like, is that, is that good enough, right? You know, like, Santa, I've definitely, you know, I've definitely um, done my own thing and done some crazy things. I, I don't know, Santa. Like, have I been a good boy? Then when parents take their kids to some of the shopping uh, stores around Christmas time, even the clerks, even the clerks. So kids, have you guys been good kids this year? Right. And I've never really heard good conversation at that point. Have you ever heard kids respond appropriately? You know, well, yeah, you know, I mean, just yesterday I did this and that. Like, it's always an odd question. It's odd because what's happening 
is the same way that you view the gift of God in grace. Well, I, I guess if I, I guess if I, if the scale is strong enough on the goods, then, then yes, I, I guess I've been a good boy this year, God. So, so then I, what, I get the gift? And if I've been naughty, I, I don't? When we just read, he died for us when we were far from him. He gave us the gift when we had nothing to offer him. I want to make sure all of you understand something that I know you would laugh off, but some of you are believing. Jesus works on a way different system than our culture. And so if grace is a gift, then next slide. If grace is a gift, then it is a gift to be opened. My guess is some of you on Christmas morning were the kid, certainly like me, I don't sleep much anyway. I'm a rambunctious child. My, uh, my kids have now become rambunctious child. It's God, God's retribution on me. But I would wake up at like 4.30 on Christmas morning, right? Like run down the stairs, just like pacing, you know, like this mom up. I would give them until about 4.35, you know, and like mom and dad, like it's time, right? And I, I, just, I just could not wait, could not wait to open it up. Some of you have been waiting for 18 years. Looking at it, you can see it. You can see others opening it but you just kind of walk around it. If grace is a gift, then it is meant to be opened. Open like a five-year-old who cannot wait to bust open the top and experience whatever is inside. If grace is a gift, my friends, why are you waiting? Why are you hesitating? There's no checklist. It's not do this and then open it. It's open and receive. The hand of a king has reached out to you, a peon, and is inviting you to come with him. Open it. If grace is a gift, it is to be received in humility. I know some of you don't have kids, but inevitably, as an aunt, an uncle, or certainly you can remember this yourself, you've been to the three-year-old birthday party where there's like 35 presents around said three-year-old and everyone's really excited and you got the appropriate decorations and the streamers and people even got those, you know, those buzzer things. I mean, it's just, it's a party. And then the three-year-old starts opening those presents and you can see the grimace on that sweet, little, not-so-innocent, son-of-the-devil three-year-old that is opening these presents like she or he has deserved them. Opens it up, passes on to the next one. If you're like me, I've been in those moments at times with my own children, at times with others, and I just want to hit somebody. I'm just like, how can someone act this way? Are you kidding me? Like all these people have, have gone out of their way to provide you a gift 
And, and you're like, you have some like, some shrug of, you know, uncertainty in your pride as you open it. What in the world? That's why when Jesus heals 10 lepers and only one comes back, he says, where are the other nine? It's easy to receive the healing and move on. It's easy to think that because of what you have to offer the kingdom of God in all of your incredible gifts, in your mind, hearing over and over, it's a good thing God was gracious on me because look what I've done for him. If it is a gift, then it is to be received in humility. Me and my family on Saturday headed to Ecuador. One of the things I love about going to Ecuador is when I get time with these kids that I built a deep relationship with in the village of Santana, you give one of those kids one crayon that's probably half broken. And the look of humility in them, the cherishing, the prized possession. I cannot wait for my privileged, often living as though they deserve it children, see one of those kids and beckon my children to be humbled. If it's a gift, then it's meant to be received in humility. If grace is a gift, the response says it all. Come on. You guys have been in situations where good old Aunt Mildred gave you a present you haven't talked to her in years she certainly has no idea about your likes or your dislikes and is generally dis uh, uh, detached from culture and you open a sweater from what looks like 1982 which is slightly coming back but that particular year hasn't come all the way back and so you hold it up in front of you also realizing it's the size to fit your hamster okay and so there's like something in you where you're like well, I know I'm supposed to be thankful. Oh, Aunt Mildred, and everyone can see, everyone can see. This isn't like, you're not, you're not having this. This isn't appropriate, right? Like, but your face says disingenuously, oh, this is great. And everyone can see right through it. Just like when the gift giver, in my case, my children, who I've worked so hard. I mean, I searched on Amazon for 30 minutes to find that gift. And I give it to them. And I'm, I'm longing for the joy of their response. Man, I bet they're going to be so pumped about this. And, you know, man, I've worked hard, thought through it. And they open it, and their face says, not so much. The response says it all. So, yes, church, yes. We can respond with some applause. We can respond to this gift with half-hearted living. Yeah, guys, like we can respond with an American-like Christianity. Yes, that's the way we can respond. And in so doing, the response says it all. We're not really thankful. 
We don't really care. It's a gift that we deserved. In fact, God, thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead, take the gift of grace, and 100% take it for granted. Why? Because you're going to forgive me anyway. So I'm going to live like hell, and you'll forgive me. I'm going to continue to indulge in, the, in the, uh, the, the, the notions and the emotions of my flesh. Why? Because you're just going to forgive me, God. So yes, we can do that. And I just want to make sure over and over and over that you understand there is a massive difference to the Christianity that you think is real because it's what you see and what's in the word of God. And if you're gauging what it means to follow Christ right now by the culture around you, my friends, that is not the gauge. Response says it all. If grace is a gift, finally, it is to be stewarded. Uh, So um, this happens often in my house. Uh, One of my sons gets a Nerf gun. Okay, we have plenty of them. And uh, they get a Nerf gun, and in about 20 minutes, uh, my son comes in, and he has a large stick sticking out of the barrel of the gun, okay? Hey, Daddy, I think my gun's broken. Right. I just gave this to you 20 minutes ago. What happened? Well, I, I was like out, and I was looking at the beauty of God's creation in the sky, and my barrel was facing heaven, and then this, like, wind shook and Dad, you'll never believe it, but all of a sudden, this stick just lodged right in, the, right in my barrel. It's like a Jesus stick, Dad, you know? And I know what's happened. He and his brother went out there. They started playing lightsaber versus Nerf gun. My son knew that to disable the Nerf gun, it was to stick the lightsaber right in the barrel. Over and over and over, we've given our kids gifts And within 20 or 30 minutes, they're broke. One of the things I've been learning so much about recently is stewardship. Uh, So much so that um, you're going to continually hear it from me. Because I believe ultimately what we are as stewards of of what God has given us. So if grace is a gift, then it is a gift to be stewarded, to be um, taken serious, to be seen as a means of glorifying God. And the reality is, right now, some of you stomping all over it, leaving it behind. Again, maybe at one point you you held closely to it, knowing that was all that, that you had or needed. But now it's just some gift that you threw away like Toy Story, because it's not useful anymore. Well, verse 10 shapes for us a powerful ending. Let's read it together. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is anyone else seeing the, what appears to be a paradox? Verse 9 just said, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast that all of us would be representative of God's power. And yet here in verse 10, it says, we're made for his workmanship, created for good works. So which one is it? It's both. Our works don't save us. Our works are the evidence of what God has done and is doing. Let me say it this way. God has done a work in us to do a work through us. So the works that we have been created for, the serving the Lord and following Christ and being with Him, is something that as a good painter paints a beautiful portrait in you, is God saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I made. Look at who I called. Look at where they came from and what's happening now. We are the evidence to the world of an unbelievably creative painter. We are his workmanship. And so... Um, you get to the end of this passage, and I've had a lot of dreams and ideas of what it would look like right now. Like people running in the aisles, um, everyone so encouraged by the word and bathed in it that, you know, people would be on their face worshiping, and we'd already be seeing like prayer. Like I've had all these dreams and ideas, and I've realized over and over and over, like I just, I just, I'm laying those down again. I can't make any of you respond in this way or that way, and I'm not going to. Instead, what I want to do is I want to help you relate to something. I want to help you relate to this. Next slide. Then Jesus deeply moved again, the scripture says. Well, deeply moved again means he was moved before and what many uh, of your favorite Bible verse, he's just wept at the death of Lazarus. He's, he's moved again, the scripture says, and he came to the tomb of Lazarus. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And look at this. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So you have Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, who people have been telling Jesus he's been sick. This has been happening for days, and Jesus methodically has been making his way to Lazarus with seemingly no urgency. And so now he shows up and says, hey, let's go ahead and move the stone. And Martha is like, I want, I want to make sure you know what's happening. Like, he's been dead for four days. Like, this is the point where the body is decomposing and there will be an odor. But Jesus says, no, 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 I need you to, I need you to, I need you to move the stone. Get rid of it, would you? Next slide. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and I, I pray you see this. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
You know why this is such a poignant moment in the scripture? Because Hebrews says that Jesus is still making intercession for you. The Father is still hearing Jesus. He's still pleading to the throne of grace for you. Just as he did, as he pleaded for Lazarus, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe, believe that you sent me. Verse 43. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He's been dead for four days. There's no possible way, no possible way this is going to work. Lazarus is done. Martha's going to go home discouraged. You have heard this same voice, some of you. You were dead. But now you've been unified in the death and the life of Christ. Some of you have heard this voice. You laying in the tomb, in the pit of your despair, sitting in your stench. And all of a sudden you hear the words of a king say the impossible, your name and come out. It's time. You don't have to sit there anymore. You don't have to live in the darkness for one more day. There's no use in sulking. You're not going to get anywhere searching for this or for that. Come out. Some of you remember the first time you heard those words. And for some of you, the first time that you heard them is right now. Some of you here looking at the gift, years and years, passing it by, watching others experience it and enjoy it. And right now, literally right in this very second, some of you are hearing with a loud voice the King, the Savior, cry out your name, come out, open the gift. You don't have to spend one more day in there. And there's a piece of you that's like, there's no way that I could be saved. Next slide. And the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips. And his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. He was dead, now he's alive. He was held captive, but now he's free. 
He was bound up, but now he is loosed, but God. Four days dead, but God. Let's stand together. Come on. Pornography. Gripping some of you so tightly, you feel like there's no way out but God. Some of you caught in a relationship that's just on this hamster wheel pattern of sin. Tumultuous, you just be dragged deeper and deeper. But God, he can pull you out of that. Some of you so rattled by a past of abuse. Your identity has been squashed to nothing. The lies of the enemy pounding in your mind. Some of you even contemplating to end it all. But God, some of you ready to completely leave following Jesus, but believing that this thing over here is going to provide you what Jesus never has, but God. Do you think for one second that you can possibly hold the keys to deter the power of God? Open the gift, the complacent in the room, open it again. Those who have felt distanced from God, open it again. And those who have never known it, those who have never tasted it, but God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, is intentionally, not accidentally, calling you out of the darkness into light right this second. Church, it's time to respond. As unbound, as free, as sons and heirs, as, as those who have tasted the richness of his mercy and grace. And the response, not just in this moment, but in the days ahead, tell it all. Let's celebrate what God has done.